Well, good morning. Welcome to Regen. My name is Stephanie, and we are so glad to have you here. Um, at Regen, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so our hope and our prayer is just that everything we do this morning, through the songs we sing, through the sermon, and just through the time that we spend together, that your life would be interrupted by his love and grace. Um, so just for a few announcements, we're flipping over on our check-ins. I don't know if we have a slide for that or not. But for... Um, OYO camp, which is a camp for um, kids who are hard of hearing and deaf. So for this month, um, we'll be supporting them. And Anna Chinchik, um, who is a member here at Regen, is a counselor there and a, a cause that she's really passionate about. So we're excited to be able to support her. So if you have a Facebook account and want to check in, use the hashtag RegenGives. Um, and then just some upcoming things tonight is breakfast at our place. So we're pretty excited about that. So um, come on out and join us. Bring your favorite breakfast food to share, and we'll have a good time. Um, and if you need our address or any other information, just see me after, and I can get that for you. And then um, March 18th, which is a Sunday, right after the service, we'll be doing lunch, and we'll be doing one of our Discover events, and it's Discover Your Gifts. So we'll be talking about um, your spiritual gifting and how God, in particular, wants to use you to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. So we'd love for you to join us. You can RSVP on Facebook. You can let me know, or we'll probably just ask the day of, and you can let us know you're coming. So not a big deal. Um, and then uh, Easter Egg Hunt is coming up, which we're really excited about. It's going to be um, March 24th right here at Regen. Um, the Banning uh, kids are going to be uh, standing out by the doors as we leave, and they're going to have invitations. If you have someone in your life that you'd like to invite to the Egg Hunt, make sure and grab one of these. Um, it talks about the Egg Hunt and about the fact that Rodeo the Donkey a real live donkey will be with us on Palm Sunday, so get excited. Um, so you can invite them both to the egg hunt and to see Rodeo the donkey. Those of you who had eggs, if you want to um, just bring those back in the next couple weeks, there's a box out in the entryway. And then um, the fun part, we actually need people to help us do the egg hunt. So um, Caitlin and I are super excited. We met this week to talk through everything. We're going to have a bounce house. We're going to have face painting. And then we're going to have a glow-in-the-dark um, egg cave where explorers can go looking for eggs. Yeah, that's good, right? Yeah. Um, so we'll need people to help set up for that, put out eggs, and then um, just be part of the event. So um, Caitlin is going to be in the um, lobby after church, and she'll have a clipboard, hopefully, um, if Zach and Jenna show up with our printed list of assignments, and you can sign up back there with her to um, take part in the egg hunt. And if not, I'll just maybe come and ask you myself. So, you know, you can decide if you want to do that or if I should do that. So um, we're really excited about this opportunity just to serve our community and to serve the, um, the kids here and to have fun as a team together. So we're really looking forward to that event. I think it'll be Awesome. Okay, with um, Good Friday service, which is coming up March 30th, yeah, 30th, March 30th, right here at Regen at 7 p.m. If you are interested in singing in a joint choir um, with Grace, so if you love to sing and that's something you would want to do, please see me afterwards. There's going to be two practices, Thursday, March 22nd and March 29th from 6 to 6.30. Um, and if I know you sing and you don't come and see me, I'll still come and talk to you. So um, I think Kyle and I are going to be part of it. We're trying to wrangle Aaron into it, which I just put him on the spot. But, you know, it'll be fun. So um, Sarah doesn't sing, so that's why she's not being wrangled into it. Um, but anyway, we're excited about that opportunity just to um, worship together and to be um, have both campuses together and be able to do um, that in just a way that we don't normally get to. So we're super excited about that as well. Um, I think that is it. 
Oh, if you bought a Lent book and didn't pay me, or you can't remember if you paid me, if you could just see me after, that would be awesome, and I can let you know. So, or you're going to collections, which I don't know what that means, but good luck. So, <laughs> things just got real. All right, uh, that's all for the announcements, so I'm going to turn it over to Aaron. Hey, guys. Um, yes, if you're wondering, I did spill coffee all over myself. It's Okay. Uh, we're going to pass around the bucket, so uh, if you want to just go ahead, we're going to start um, some worship and, and prayer, and we'll, we'll get these passed around. Um, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together um, as the body, as your body, um, and we just pray that you would use these things that we are giving back to you. Um, we know that all good gifts are from you, and so... We just want to mirror your generosity with ours. Um, so God, we just bless um, the lives of the people who will be affected by our generosity. Um, and we just ask that today during worship, um, you would make yourself known to us, um, that you would speak to us in a voice that is familiar, um, and one that is loving, one that is friendly, um, but most importantly, one that is true. Amen. so devoted to us unlike anyone else will ever know unlike anyone else who will ever love us Lord yours never fails God we thank you for your presence here this morning Thank you for teaching us more about your truth and about who you are and about who we are to you. I pray that our hearts would be open to what you want to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat. Um, kids are going to go back with Miss Kathy. Joe, can you hold these? Kids are going to go back with Miss Kathy. I'm going to move this back because I'm afraid I'm going to get excited. Okay, splash zone, perfect. So kids are going back with Miss Kathy. Um, if it makes a difference, we're, um, we're talking about sex today. Um, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about sex. I imagine if uh, you will... Uh, want me to stop there, uh, but I won't. Um, um, Aaron said three important words when he was praying. He said, loving, friendly, true is the sound of the voice of Jesus. I would write those words down if I were you, because I did. Loving, friendly, true. It's a good word, Aaron. Good job. Um, because that's what I want the voice of Jesus to sound like. I, want, I, I think one of the growing things in my heart is that we would as a church, have a sense of what it sounds, what Jesus' voice sounds like. 
Um, and that voice does not sound like Zach Byler's voice mumbling out in the foyer. Um, and that we would have a sense of his voice as loving and friendly and true. Us knowing the voice of Jesus is absolutely vital. Us knowing what his voice sounds like is absolutely vital. And it is not a voice that is saved for the particularly spiritual or mature, but it is a voice uh, saved for all of us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. And so we're talking about sex today and I hope that from me, you know me well enough to know that I love you and have a tremendous amount of affection for you and uh, want you to understand the truth of what God's word says, even if it really probably smacks us in some ways. It is really my passion that we know Jesus, and part of knowing Jesus is knowing not only his invitation, but also knowing his challenge. And uh, some of us are going to be tempted to hear this message through the lens of, so-and-so in my life really needs to hear that. That is the wrong way to hear this message. The right way to hear this message is, this is God speaking to me, not to me, so I can tell somebody else about it. And uh, yeah, so I love you, and let's see what happens when we get into this. I'm going to pray, because that gives you, and we closed the doors so none of you could get out, is really what we did. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm going to pray so that you can, you know, if you have something suddenly to do, you can go do that, but let me pray. Jesus, um, we want you to be lifted high in our hearts, and in our lives, and in our bodies, and that often means hearing uncomfortable truths about ourselves. But God, it's uncomfortable, and at the same time, it is um, absolutely life-giving. You said, actually, that the truth would set us free. And so set us free this morning by your truth. Set us free this morning uh, by your presence. God, I pray for my friends that when I say something that bothers them, that you would make it so that they can't write it off, but that instead you would invite and, yes, challenge them in further. Jesus, you're always calling us deeper, and so um, this is an area for us that you are calling a lot of us deeper in a variety of ways, so help us to hear your voice today, loving, friendly, true true, friendly, loving. Help us to hear your voice and then courageously do what you say and help us to support one another even as we do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is famous for a lot of things, but one of the things he's famous for is taking his copy of the Bible and cutting out parts of it that he didn't agree with. So this is a picture of his Bible. He would literally take a, a pen knife and to the parts of scripture that he found irrelevant, antiquated, old-fashioned, uh, religious, impossible, those things, he, he, he cut them out. Which, when you think about it, isn't a terrible idea. Jesus' teaching uh, have always been difficult. And at the height of his popularity, at the height of his, like, the most biggest following, the most biggest. All right, let's work on that. The most biggest following, uh, he, he looks at them and says some things and it causes the vast majority to walk away, the vast majority to walk away and to say, um, this is a difficult saying, 
who could accept it. And if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of us live uh, just like our Bibles had pieces cut out of them. If we're being honest, we like Thomas Jefferson's approach. We like the idea of avoiding the parts of Jesus that are hard to swallow. We like to reject the parts that challenge us too intensely. I mean, we want it. Give us a Jesus that loves us. Yes. Give us a Jesus who cares about justice. Give me a Jesus I can rely on when I suffer, please. But Jesus, if you could do us a favor and calm down, that would be really convenient for us. If we could make him more tame, that would be ideal. And then we come to the book of Revelation, this sweeping letter that has in its midst a Jesus who is absolutely anything but calm, absolutely anything but tame, absolutely anything but safe. And John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, encounters the risen Jesus in what he calls an apocalypsis, a revelation in which like reality is uncovered and unveiled so that John sees Jesus in the midst of his circumstances as it, he really is. And Jesus, through John, has John write seven letters to seven churches in the ancient world. Seven letters that while they were written to a people and to a church that we've never seen and, will, and do not know, they are still all the same for us. And in those letters, we hear the invitation and challenge of Jesus. This Jesus calling us, calling his people to be more like himself. And in these seven letters, there's this interesting phenomenon where each of the seven letters are almost a a catalog of the ways that we wander away from Jesus, the things that threaten to crowd Jesus out of our hearts and souls. And it begins with spiritual apathy. It includes suffering, which is as likely to push us closer to Jesus as it is to push us away from Jesus. Last week, we looked at idolatry, and this week, we are looking at sex. Sex. So the bullet point I have here says, sex in Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira is the letter that John is writing to. It's number four there on the screen. It's a little inland. It's unique that this letter is written to Thyatira because it's a relatively inconsequential town. Uh, There's a picture of some of its remains now. Uh, Before the Pax Romana, before the Roman Empire took over and then brought peace kind of wherever its roads were, Thyatira was a forgotten backwater along a river somewhere in Asia. But with the Pax Romana, with all roads lead to Rome, uh, uh, Thyatira actually became a center for trade. And in fact, throughout the city popped up trade guilds, uh, precursors to our unions, I guess. And these trade guilds, each of the guilds had a patron god or goddess, and if you were a metal worker, you belonged to that trade guild. If you were a tent maker, you belonged to that guild. And in the midst of this growing city, a small Christian community, a small Jesus people movement perks up and, 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 and enters in. And the thing that happens is that in this small little Christian community, just like the church in Pergamum that we looked at last week, Heresy, false teaching, bad doctrine seeps into the church. It infiltrates the church, and they, like the church in Pergamum, begin engaging in idolatry because when you got together with your guild, you did some rituals to honor the God that represented your guild, and then you ate the meat that was sacrificed to them. There, there was idolatry, and idolatry always, 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 always leads to, leads to sex, leads to sexual immorality. And this church that Jesus praises in chapter 2, verse 19. Actually, let me read this whole letter. It starts in chapter 2, verse 18 of the book of Revelation. It says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. 
This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. You know all the things, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. But I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever it is you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod, which is not an AR-15, if you saw the news this weekend, and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I mean, what high praise does the Lord give this church? In verse 19, he says he sees their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance, and he even says, I can see your constant improvement in all these things. I mean, there are very few areas in my life where I am constantly improving, and yet it is to this church, this church which receives high praise, that in verse 20, Jesus says, I have this complaint against you. You are permitting, we'll get back to the word permitting in a little while, that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. And she teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. John identifies this woman who is leading the people astray as a Jezebel, invoking an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament account of King Ahab's uh, Phoenician wife named Jezebel. Last week he talked about Balaam. This week he's talking about Jezebel. Jezebel, while she was married to King Ahab, the king of Israel, programmatically led the northern kingdom into Baal worship and sorcery. Baal worship is B-A-A-L. It is a false god. B-A-L-L worship is what you do after church. Right? Yes. Thank you. Sports. Yes. B-A-A-L is what the problem was here. And ball worship always included sorcery, always included sacrifice, and always, 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 always included uh, sexual immorality and sexual rituals that would make a pornographer blush. And this woman, this new Jezebel, has led the people into idolatry, offering them secret spiritual insight, right? In verse 24, it says that she has offered them deeper truths, which Jesus, sassy Jesus, calls depths of Satan. There was this tendency in the early church to engage in something that was called Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosko, and it had this secret knowledge. It's almost kind of like this weird um, Da Vinci Code Masons thing, right? Like if, uh, if uh, you know, you go up a level, we'll give you a little more of the secrets, 
and how you get up a level is through sexual ritual uh, in Gnosticism. And so Jezebel is leading them away with promises of secret knowledge and into, and into immorality. And Jesus indicates that he has given this Jezebel time to repent. It's super interesting. In verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she wouldn't. And so Jesus ups the ante in verses 22 and 23. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I'll strike her children dead. Here's Jesus, both angry and sassy. Sassy Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, all right, Jezebel, you want to be in bed? I will put you in bed. I will throw you in bed. Only the, be- the word bed uh, here in Greek isn't like the heart-shaped bed with a mirror above it in some sort of weird hotel. Um, it is, it, which is what Jezebel has in mind. Uh, the bed is actually a sick bed. It's a hospital bed. It's a bed that you lie in to die. And now he says, I, I, he gives them another out unless they repent. I mean, twice Jesus is offering them a lot of grace in verses 21 and 22. There's a way out of this. They can repent. We can restore our community. There's always a way out. And yet they insist on not. And so Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. I mean, obviously Jesus means business. And he doesn't mean Jezebel's biological children. He means her spiritual children. He means those closest to her, those who are following her teachings. This letter to Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. The longest part of this letter is the complaint section of verses 20 through 24. And here Jesus in this letter is introduced as the one with the bronze feet, i.e. strong, unshakable authority, and with eyes of burning fire which is a sign of knowing. This Jesus is all geared up and ready to go. And in essence, the length of this letter, the intensity with which Jesus addresses us and addresses the church in Thyatira, reveals that Jesus very much cares about our sex lives. Reveals that Jesus very much cares about our sex lives. But if we were being honest, we really, really wish he wasn't. We really, really wish he cared about other things. We wish that he would just leave us be. I mean, just in this one area, because goodness, we're doing the right things in other places, Jesus. I mean, I'm in church most weeks, and I'm serving, and I'm singing, and I'm leading, and I'm giving, and I'm in this Bible study where Kyle says some hard things, or Steph says some hard things every once in a while. I mean, I'm doing this. Can't we just leave this one thing to its own, Jesus? I mean, Jesus could not have imagined how much of a buzzkill he would be. I mean, let's get honest. I mean, people in Jesus' day had the advantage of marrying at 16, And now he wants us to like wait to have sex until we're married, what, until like 25, 30? Millennials aren't even getting married until their mid or late 30s now. I mean, that's twice the amount of time Mary had to wait to have sex with Joseph. I mean, come on. And Jesus couldn't understand the amount of pressure that we feel to make sure that we put out on the second or the third date. Because, you know, Jesus, you know, you don't understand. If I don't put out on the second or the third date, the reality is I'm never going to find anybody that's interested in me. And once we even are committed, once we date, once we're dating and maybe we get engaged, I mean, what's the difference between having sex when you're engaged and having sex when you're married? I mean, really, I mean, we're going to spend our, our lives together anyway. And, and Jesus, I know you're not a fan of us living together, but understand like my parents were divorced, her parents are divorced. I mean, we need to like hedge our bets here and make sure that this is going to work out. Otherwise we're really going to screw ourselves up and we're really going to screw our kids up. And yeah, Jesus, I look at porn a little bit, but it's not a thing It's not an addiction. It's just this thing that I do. It kind of helps me get through the day. It just helps me cope, but it's not a thing. And now we get to why Jesus cares about sex. Jesus cares about sex. In fact, he says it in verse 23 of this chapter. He says, 
then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. It's really interesting. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll look at that in a second, tends to take a more body perspective. But, but John, in Revelation, takes a more motive and thought and desire and affection tack. Jesus sees behind this individualism, behind the walls that say it's none of your business. He sees behind our trying to get a date, our waiting for the, our aggressively pursuing the right person. He sees behind all of this stuff and he sees the fear and the anxiety and the insecurity and the hedging our bets that goes on in our sex lives. He sees how we end up sleeping with somebody too soon or ending up in a relationship that we shouldn't be in. He sees the chains that attach us to the computer screen. He sees the pride that has us chasing down the guy or the girl who looks or acts the way we want but doesn't love Jesus. By the way, that's the only question you ever have to ask, answer to me when you tell me you're dating somebody. I will say, does he love Jesus? The reason I ask that is because there is no qualifying. And a good answer is, not, well, he goes to church sometimes. Okay, so does Satan. That's fine. Um, used to ask my youth group kids, do they love Jesus? Well, either they do or they don't. All right? Jesus sees behind, like, all of these activities and us running after this person and sleeping with this person and that relationship with this person and all these things, and he sees underneath us the anxiety and the insecurity, and, and, and he see these thoughts and desires in us, and that's what worries him most. He sees you working out all of your fears and anxieties, which, by the way, are legitimate. It's, it's legitimate to be worried about, will I meet somebody? It's legitimate to be worried about, will I be alone forever? But he sees us meeting these legitimate needs and questions in illegitimate ways. When Jesus talks to us about sex or money or gossip or our mouths or, or our time. He's not trying to be a party pooper. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to put himself in between us and the bullet that is sin flying right at us at 500 miles an hour. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. I have it on the screen. It says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that have no water at all. A cracked cistern is a well that does not hold water. And the picture that Jeremiah makes of sin and these things that we chase after is what we're chasing after is the living water that we've abandoned. And we're chasing after it and chasing after it. And we keep digging these wells and digging these wells and coming up empty because we dig these wells that can't hold water. That's the problem with sin. It's not that it's bad and that it's ugly because here's the truth of the fact. Sin is fun, otherwise people wouldn't do it. It, and, and what you find is you dig this well and there might be some water in there for a while and then that water runs dry and you do this about a half a dozen, dozen, 18 times and eventually it starts to catch up to you that maybe, just maybe, there's a problem with the well. Maybe, just maybe, there's a problem with the water that I'm finding in this well. Maybe, just maybe, and that, and that is the thing that Jesus is trying to get to. I could tell you all sorts of what to do and what not to do when it comes to sex. I could. In fact, I was raised in a church that did that all the time. But if you don't know why Jesus cares, it doesn't matter what you do. 
If we don't know why Jesus gets all geared up about this and the reason he gets geared up is for the same reason that I would never let somebody I love go chasing something that would make them come up empty. Never. Never ever would I let somebody I love go chasing after something that would leave them bored and empty. And so Jesus sees us doing this all of the time, in particular in sex. He sees us running after this thing that always, always leaves us thirsty. And and the problem with this argument is people can say, well, Kyle, I'm fine. I I don't find myself thirsty. What about five years from now? What about 10 or 15 or or 25? This is the New Testament's problem with sin. This is Jesus' problem with sin is that ultimately it leaves us thirsty. Ultimately, this quest for wholeness and intimacy that we're on in the way that we're dating and the way that we're using our sexuality ultimately has us coming up empty. And it's in that spirit that Paul actually does address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. This is from 1 Corinthians 6 out of the message. He says, sex is as much a spiritual mystery as it is a physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, with Jesus, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There's a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, those bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love, for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place the place of the Holy Spirit. Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God has paid at such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. See, Jesus knows this, that we are chasing after sex left and right because we're looking for wholeness. We're looking for wholeness. Even the very mechanics of sex point to wholeness. We want the wholeness God designed sex for. We want the intimacy. We want the joy. We want all of that, but it can only be found in one place. It can only be found in the way in pursuing sex in the way that God designed. Jesus gets all geared up because in pursuing sex, here's ultimately what happens. When we pursue sex, we believe all sorts of lies. We believe the lies that our insecurity and our fear tell us. We believe the lie that our culture tells us. We believe lie after lie after lie after lie. We believe believe that God, in his wisdom, won't provide for us what we need and what we want in the right timing. And so we act like everybody else has living water when, in fact, Jesus does it. Now, oddly, there are two sins, two sins mentioned in this text. So let's come up for water because some of you want me to stop talking about sex. Sex, sex, sex. Look at verse 22. Nope, verse 20. I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, da, 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 da. There are two equal and opposite errors in Revelation 2, and one is the sexual immorality, and the other one is those people who are permitting and tolerating the sexual immorality. Sorry, millennials, you're, gonna about, to, you're about to like have an aneurysm. Tolerance is a bad word. Permissiveness is a bad word. Change the subject. You're at a table this afternoon and somebody's gossiping about somebody that you know. If you don't participate, but at the same time don't stop them, you're just as equally held accountable by God. 
We're called to be up in one another's business, but what happens in churches is we spend so much time kissing each other's butts that we become more afraid of each other than we are of sin. And so we kind of just let everybody do their own thing because you know what, that's their journey. They're speaking their truth. Don't know what that means. Meanwhile, Paul says in Galatians, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Tell you what, though, it is hard to be gentle and humble. So back to sex. What, here's the question, church, what is more uncomfortable? Telling people that they're sinning or talking about sex in church. You know what? Everybody's like, I should have missed today. I should have had the, Mitch's thing, like, Mitch had the flu. They're like, why did I not rub my face in Mitch's face? You know, why did I not catch that? By the way, I told you all last week we were teaching about sex. This is the highest attendance that we've had in a month. Same thing at Grace Campus. It's been pretty low there. I tell them last week, church full of people in their 60s and 70s, they're still having sex. Tell you what, they are. And, uh, Ask your grandparents about it. It'll be super comfy. And, um, and uh, so I tell them, hey, church, we're talking about sex in a church that does not do that, right? They do not talk about sex in the pulpit. Highest attendance we've had, like, since January 1. Crazy. So don't tell me this isn't interesting. Don't tell me that at the very least you're not here to watch me set myself on fire. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Guy says to me after service last time, he was like, man, I was, I've been in wars, and I've not seen stuff that brave before. So, you know been talking about how we need to put out more chairs. We're going to need to take some away next week. It's going to be really cool. This sermon is not about having less sex. This sermon is not about having less sex. This sermon is about having more of Jesus. This sermon is not about having less sex. Okay, but it, but it is about having less sex. Side note. Um, my, my friend Josh came and taught my, my youth group on what love means. And he says, love isn't a feeling, it's an action, but it's also a feeling, right? Um, Funch is not a, an event, it's a lifestyle, but it's also an event. Hannah and I were part of the cool kids club at Moody. It was very exciting. I was unpopular all the way through high school and at Bible college, I came back. <laughs> Glory. And uh, this is not a sermon about having less sex. It's about having more of Jesus. It's also probably about having less sex, but it's about having more of Jesus, it's about having more of Jesus. It is about the reality that what Jesus wants is for our thoughts and motivations, verse 23, our affections and our desires to be ruled and wrapped around him. And the reason he wants that is Jesus knows something that nobody else knows, but that when we step across the line of faith, we begin to discover that Jesus actually knows what the heck he's talking about. You can't confess Jesus is Lord without first confessing Jesus is smart. And when it comes into this issue, Jesus is smart. And what Jesus knows is that it is only when our affections and our thoughts and our motivations and our desires are set on him and wrapped around him that we truly find satisfaction. Because this is why sex talks sound like bad news. It's good news. And the good news of this message is that you can be satisfied. You can be secure you don't have to be afraid anymore. You can be content in singleness. That's the good news of this text. And it only happens when our sex lives, frankly, are governed and ordered and arranged by Jesus. And that means some hard things. 
and hard conversations and major decisions. But what Jesus wants is for us, what Jesus wants is for us to find the satisfaction and the freedom that comes when our lives are ordered around him. We're gonna sing a song in a minute. Um, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender, there's a surrendering piece of this, into your hands. And then there's a line, for it's only in your will that I am free. When Jesus tells us the truth, he does it to set us free. And if it doesn't sound like freedom, it's because we've just gotten that used to slavery. When Jesus tells us the truth, if it doesn't sound to us, if it doesn't sound if it doesn't sound like freedom, it's because we're that used to slavery. The Israelites in Exodus, they barely get out of the land. I mean, like, they're still kind of moist from walking through the Red Sea. You're welcome, I use the word moist. Um, they're, they're still kind of damp from that. And they all start saying to Moses, let's go back to, the, let's go back to Egypt. Because you know what? And Moses is like, why? And he's, they're like, well, because there was food there. Moses says, Yes, you were also enslaved there. And they go, but there was also food. <laughs> right? And this is, how, this is how we behave when it comes to sin, is that we get free, and it doesn't feel like freedom, and we're like, but at least there were cheeseburgers. Right? And yet there is true freedom that comes from what happens when we find Jesus. It's not about having less sex. It's about having more of Jesus. And our sex lives are probably the number one thing that crowd Jesus out of our souls. It's why I think, by the way, this is the middle letter. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. I think it's the, like, has a highlighted point to it. So a couple of encouragements. Look at the last verse, and I don't think I have it on the screen, Dan. Look at the last couple verses. The ones that that cult in Pennsylvania are trying to tell us are about guns. A little bit before that. At the end of verse 24, Jesus says, I will ask nothing more of you. And this is what's cool is Jesus is like, this is not complicated. It is, but it's not, right? He says, I will ask nothing more of you that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. I'll ask nothing more of you that you hold tightly to what I have until, you, until I come. And this is what Jesus means. This is what Jesus means by that. He says, hold on to me with white knuckles. A friend of mine recently said, don't doubt in the darkness what God revealed in the light. There's some wisdom to that. It's a little kitschy, but I think it's true. Hold tightly to what is true. Hold tightly to what is right. Hold tightly to what Jesus is asking of you. And then he says, and I will come. He says, I will come. He says, I'm not going to just like leave you hanging on a cliff by your fingertips, hoping that you can hold on long enough. He says, I will come. I will share with you my strength and I will share with you my presence and I will share with you my blessing and I will share with you my kindness and in that you will find freedom and satisfaction and truth and actually joy. Scripture says in, the, in his presence there is fullness of joy. You'll find joy in the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of that middle. And, and for those of you that have failed, my earnest desire is that this sermon is not shaming to you. And um, especially as someone who has generally an allergic reaction to shame in a church atmosphere of the last 50 years that has excelled in shame. It's been the only way that we've known how to get anything done in Christ as Christians in the, 20 in the 20th century since 1950. 
basically. I don't want to shame you. And, and so look back at chapter 2, verse 17. It's just the end of the letter that we looked at last week where Jesus says, I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Um, you screwed up. You made a mistake. You wish you hadn't. You wish it was different. Your past is not as defining to you as your potential. And when we get to heaven, it says that the name of Jesus will be written on our foreheads. What will not be written on our foreheads is our failures. So I can be like, oh, Dan, he screwed up. I can tell because look at his forehead, right? The name on our foreheads is the name is the stone is Jesus. He gives us a new identity. And fun fact, white stones were what were handed out when you were declared innocent in a Jewish court. And Jesus says, you have a white stone. Jesus says, in me and with me, I am your white stone. Jesus says, your past is not as interesting to me as your, your potential. There's grace there. Let me pray and we're going to take communion. Jesus, let this be good news for us. Let it be something that calls us deeper. Um, Jesus, when we've been in a season of invitation, a season of challenge begins to feel uh, like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, and so, Father, help us to know your grace and your love today um, and help us to be called to more and deeper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is why we kind of come back to this meal every time. Um, we're together is because it is a very tangible reminder of the forgiveness of Jesus that um, his blood speaks a better word over us, right? His voice is the loudest one. It's also a good reminder because as we wait, as we hold on, uh, we need strength. And, and in this meal, the presence and strength of Jesus is shared with us. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he offered it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He said, eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup, and he offered it to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many in forgiveness of sins, in forgiveness of sins, not in anger, not here, have this cup of wrath, but forgiveness. Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is that life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that broken body which is made whole on Easter. Uh, those, that blood poured out which is restored and for our forgiveness. It is that which gives us that new name. So the way we take communion or receive communion, I should say, together at Regen is pretty simple. You'll come forward, we'll rip off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup, and as we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, so um, Zach um, and Steph and Vanessa, if you would. We have gluten-free because it's the 21st century and we're like that.
So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed, forgiven, restored by his blood. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The table is open. There is nothing that you can do to make Jesus love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make Jesus love you yet less. And it occurs to me to tell you that I I feel a, a heck of a lot similar. Not a lot that you could do to make me love you less. In fact, nothing. I think I could love you more. Jesus has got me on that. But I love the snot out of you anyway. So we'll see you next week. Peace.